Hello and welcome. This is Talking Real Estate with John Gibson, proudly brought to you by Locate Negotiate. LocateNegotiate.com.au. Their managing director is John Gibson. And John, our point of difference, Talking Real Estate with John Gibson, is our special guests. And today's guest, one of the greatest administrators in the history of Australian sport. It's quite a title, but it's very, very true and it's coming our way very, very shortly. Can't wait. Well, everyone will have to just wait and see, but um, I think I'm pretty sure this is going to be our best so far. Gibbo, um, crazy times, perhaps a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, absolutely, mate. I'd be light at the end of the tunnel. I'd be looking forward to I'm looking forward to getting a haircut. That'll be first yeah. priority. Yeah, and, my um, sister had a go. My sister had a little go recently, and I'm quite happy with the job. Sorry. Yeah. I look, mate, I think you're looking all right. Looks like it's been done at Sydney Tech, but yeah. um, it's, uh, you know, you're, you've scrubbed up all right, mate. Thank you. Thank I've, got to, I've had to use the old bull cream in my hair just to get it back, you know, so. Um, yeah. it is what it is. Another month, another month, I'm just rolling with it. Another month of home detention. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our recent times, some harrowing times, the 20th anniversary of uh, that terrible day, uh, 9-11. Oh, look, I, you can't believe it's 20 years, can you? you no. Know, it's, Do you remember where you were? Gibbo? It's, Do you remember oh, where abso- you were? Absolutely, absolutely. To that day, I remember that day. I remember when Princess Di died. I remember exactly mm. that, that time where I was. Yeah. Um, I, remember, it, I remember exactly watching it in the morning, and I honestly thought – respectfully, mm. that it was a promo for an upcoming movie. I had no idea that it was real, none. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable and surreal to this day. It really is. Oh, but um, yeah. but I, I want to tell you something. Like, I, I, There's a story, of, you know, in regards to 9-11 and uh, um, on, the, on the leading into 9-11, uh, the owners of the World Trade uh, Centre scheduled a meeting on the on floor eighty eight of Tower One, to discuss what to do in the event of a terror attack. Wow! They rescheduled their meeting the night before because someone couldn't attend. <sighs> the big fella works yeah. in funny ways. Can you believe that? That's just one of a thousand of stories would roll out, oh, but it's. It's it's that's just one. Of I many. watched a I watched a series the other night, The Falling Man. I'm oh, just to this day, like you said, surreal. On a, a lighter note, but still on, mm. yeah, yeah, in the states, uh, mate, these oil rigs that pop up everywhere oh. <laughs> well, in California, you've, well, you've mate, lightened, yeah, mate. You know, it's unbelievable when I read this. There are legal soundproofed oil rigs hidden in office buildings in some California cities. So they build these oil rigs and then they build like an office to make it look like an office block and you've got these bloody oil pumps pumping up and down producing pumping oil, but they're so it's disguised. A, a, it's a big high-rise. It's a big high-rise with all the glass windows but you yep. walk inside and there's an oil rig. Pretty much. It's a facade, wow. facade. So wow. it's yeah, only could happen in America, of course. Random, random as usual, John, and very useful knowledge, though. I'll never look at L.A. Well, skyline the same. Well, you could put that on your uh, itinerary yeah. for your next little uh, trip over there to California. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay, 
Into the serious stuff, this is Locate Negotiate. I'm Mark Warren. We're talking real estate with John Gibson, Managing Director, locatenegotiate.com.au. Gibbo, um, the prices, they've been going north, how the capital city's performed over the last 10 years. Let's start with New South Wales. Well, we always talk, I mean, in recent times we've been just talking about in the last 12 months how the property market mm. goes, but it's nice to see how things have rolled out over the, mm. over the last decade. Yeah. And you'll probably find that somewhere like Sydney is probably, you know, over that decade it's probably averaged out about, you know, just probably five, you know, over five and a half, six percent on average. Uh, that will get, that will increase because of where we're at at the moment and what's happened in the last 12 months. Um, and then you've, uh, you know, and then you've got the likes of, you know, the Melbourne, probably slightly below Sydney. Um, and then you've got the Brisbans, which are slightly lower again. Um, but they're going to start tracking well leading forward. They, they will perform better. And if you look, look at the statistics in the next five years, you know, the likes of Brisbane will be, you know, better performers on average. You know. That surprises me. Queensland, one point three percent over the ten year period. I, I would think the growth over the it's last Queensland. Two years is- it's Queensland. Yeah. We're not just yeah. narrowing it yeah. down to Gold Coast or Brisbane. That's a, as a whole. Um, but there's been as as previously mentioned in in our discussions that that integrate in, interstate migrations on the up. It will. It will continue. Um, it'll, it's growing at a rate of knots up there. They're bringing the infrastructure's good. It's lifestyle. Um, so uh, I think that that average uh, will increase in time. Now give us your take on the property market during this pandemic. I know we've touched on it continuously, but it's important too as we see a little bit, as I mentioned at the top of the show, a little bit of light perhaps at the end of the tunnel. What you've got to remember, property prices are now higher than if COVID-19 had not happened at all. That's incredible. Yeah, so, I mean, sort of getting down to ultra-low interest rates, government support and stimulus, the housing market, you know, stimulating the housing market, um, as, you know, has stimulated price rises. Um, so it's, it's just an amazing that you would think um, that we're in a crisis Yet the property property market has just gone, you know, from strength to strength. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I read recently in regard to the impact of COVID on the residential market um, and house prices are now between 4 to 12% higher and units about 13% higher than they would have been in the normal course of events. So... So we're in a pandemic. Look, well, the market was probably going to chip away pretty good anyway if we didn't go on this pandemic. But because we're in a pandemic, the prices have just gone skyrocketing north. Um, very hard to put your finger on it. Looking six or 12 months down the track, perhaps, how do you, what's your take on the market? Look, at some stage, I think the prices will temper uh, over time. I don't think they're going to, um, I think... Probably over the next, not so much now. I think we've still got some serious growth in the market, but over time it will temper, and I think that um, we will find um, that it will keep chipping away at a rate of not at a steady rate uh, moving forward. But I don't have the crystal ball, um, but I think that at some stage it will sort of just ease off a little. But watch this space. 
Watch this space. Okay, very much so. And we'll do that with John Gibson, knows the space better than anyone. Look, there won't be a crash, let me tell you that way. Okay, okay. John, I know we've talked about this before on previous uh, episodes, the doom and all the gloom that the experts and the economists were predicting last year. And I, I remember your, I think you passed on the feedback that some were predicting up falls of up to 30%. Yeah, anywhere. Couldn't between, believe it any, at the time. Anywhere, anywhere between 15 and 30%, you know, yeah. uh, these economists were, were saying. Uh, I read something just recently from another economist um, and they were saying last year that they were expecting um, that there was going to be falls for for the for eighteen months, um, yeah. the property prices will fall um, on the back of this uh, pandemic coronavirus situation we're in, mm. and um, when you look back, what we're in the state we're in right now, it's it's completely the opposite. So this trend in Australia, property the property boom, is that? coincide all around the globe? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I've just been doing a fair bit of reading on this. And around the world, house prices have soared, even as the world suffered in its world uh, in its greatest slump uh, since the Great Depression. I mean, from New Zealand to the United States, Germany, China, Peru, wherever you want to look at, the same phenomenon is has taken hold. House prices have skyrocketed. What about the old dart? You mentioned Great Britain, John. Mm. Mm. Well, house prices in Great Britain have, have in 2020, surged to 8.5%, uh, despite the worst recession in more than three centuries. Can you believe 300 that? 300 years. No. <laughs> no. The worst recession in 300 years and prices go up 85 It's just like a default, the old bricks and mortar. People just fall back on it. You know, I think they just, you know, rightly or wrongly, some people see it as a safe haven. This is Talking Real Estate with John Gibson. I'm your co-host, Mark Warren. It's locatenegotiate.com.au. Buyer's agent, locatenegotiate.com.au. Seller's advocacy, it's locatenegotiate.com.au. Consultant research service, locatenegotiate.com.au. Commercial tenancy representation, locatenegotiate.com.au. Or give the team a call, 1300 008 006. That number again, 1300-008-006. Talking about bricks and mortar, tell me what's happening over the ditch in New Zealand. Well, you talk about the growth in the Aussie market, narrowed down to New South Wales, Sydney. Sydney in particular has gone gangbusters. The growth has been exponential. But in New Zealand, it's on another level again. I mean, the residential property increased by more than 24% um, over the year to March to a record high. Um, The government uh, is under increased pressure to stabilise the market because it's just getting out of control. It's not affordable for a lot of people. Um, so it's they're trying to bring in measures to just slow down this, make it harder. 24%. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's Absolutely. Crazy. Not a bad return on your money. Just incredible. Yeah. Gibbo, the affordability of houses and apartments has skyrocketed, as we've just discussed. Um, are we going to have people more accustomed to living in smaller abodes as we move forward? There is a bit of a... Um 
A buzzword? Buzzword. No. Well, a tiny house. Words. Tiny house movement is gathering a bit of steam at the moment. Um, yeah. Yeah, many people are looking to potentially uh, looking this uh, to downsize, you know, run their life more minimalist. Um, and just it's becoming a bit of a trend, not just in um, the suburbs, but even in more affluent suburbs, people are sort of looking to downsize and become a little bit more um, simplify their life. Um, so it's uh, some people looking at them as a, you know, even uh, buying properties, these smaller properties as a, as a bit of a crash pad in the city. They might have a bigger property down the suburbs. They might buy something in the city, which is sort of fairly small and minimalist. Um, the, look, the definition of a, of a, a tiny house is probably around about 37 square metres, I read, which is thirty-seven squares, square meters. Do you, you know the size? Do you know what that is? I'm not an expert. But well, if I'm you pretty, like, if you if yeah. you if you had a double garage at home, yeah, uh, at your house, and um, you're probably talking that's about say thirty-two square meters on average. My goodness! So not much bigger than that, and that inc- wow. that includes your kitchen, your bathroom, your living area. Um, so there's not a lot of not a lot of well, you can't, the old turn, can't be hard to swing a cat in there, wouldn't it? Absolutely, it would. Literally. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Depending on your reach. Yeah. As I said, take... people, there's some attraction. <laughs> people are getting attracted to simplicity. Okay. I can't say I'm sort of rolling with it. Um, I've got a couple of kids. So I couldn't imagine living with them, something so small. So, Not in the double garage. No way in the world. No. What about overseas buyers? Are they buying like they were in previous years? So we've got a situation right now is yeah. that we've got about, previous to the pandemic, COVID, probably about a million expats living overseas. And then during this pandemic, about 500,000 of them have returned. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of... So lot of people. where we've yeah. missed out on the immigration, people migrating to Australia has yeah. been picked up by the... Um, people, expats returning. So um, it's a bit of a question mark if, if you know, this, you know, the, 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 how has it affected not having immigration has affected the economy? Um, well, maybe not because we've had all those expats coming back in. Okay. The facts, you know, I mean, that's 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 data I've read through the Department of um, I'm just Foreign seeing Fair. some of your – I'm looking at some of your substantial notes. Well, 500,000 yep. is the size of Newcastle or Gold Coast. Wow. Take that on board. Yeah. 500,000 have returned home and there's plenty more to come. Yeah. The market keeps going north. I guess, I guess like the expats returning, um, mm. immigrate, where it will probably have a um, – where it's probably had an impact on the, on the economy um, and businesses in Australia is – um, more the uh, people coming in on working visas, the tourists, the backpackers, all that who come in and provide that um, work for the, the fruit picking and all those type of cafe workers. There seems to be a massive shortage of those people. So I think yeah. that that's where we've that's if we can once the borders open, people can start travelling back in Australia. That they will fill those gaps. So, yes, it's probably had a bit of a, um, an impact. That's probably had more of an impact on the, on the economy. Now, I, a fascination with people like myself, and I've talked to you about it before, about finding a place, doing a reno, even though I 
can't hammer a nail into a piece of wood. Whether it's small, medium or large, or, or perhaps doing a dual OCK or a development site. Um, tell us about that process. Not for the faint-hearted. Oh, well, I mean, I get asked a lot from people wanting to invest in property and it, or and... You know, should we be buying an establishment property or should we be buying something, a doer upper, um, yeah, something with a blank canvas we can spend some money on, or can we do a dual lock? Um, there's a fascination with it. And what I say to people is that it, you need an enormous amount of energy, effort and time to commit to one of these projects. Even the smaller projects take up a lot of time. When you start getting putting your toe in the water with doing developments where you've got to submit DAs to council and follow that process through to um, start pushing dirt around, and digging a hole, laying concrete, all those type of things, it is yeah. um, you've got to have you've got to be on your game, you've got to think it through, um, because my experience, especially with development, a lot of develop margins generally pretty tight. A lot of developers, um, everyone thinks all developers make money. They don't. That's a cold, hard fact about that. Many don't. Many fail. And um, people want to go in there, very green, want to start these developments. Yeah, it can be done, but do your homework. And, uh, you know, whether renovating or rebuilding, you need to sit down and work out uh, the true cost. Um, yeah. You need to... Uh, you need to uh, avoiding um, cost blowouts, um, avoid uh, guesstimates. Yeah. And what I mean by that is people go in and try and estimate in their head what it's going to cost. You need to sit down and you need to um, get down to a not just a macro level, a micro level, and do a detailed cost analysis. Um, so you're not going so to roll out of bed and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a property developer today. Um, I think one of your other key points reading here yesterday, um, you've got to think smart, needs versus wants. You've got to, you need to avoid project managing the big jobs and you've got to draw on experts to help you keep on track. So moving forward, if I was to do a development, I saw a mm. block of land perhaps and I think, well, it's zoned to do a duplex. What are some of the things that I might consider before going, yep, Let's do it. Well, you've got to look at the – well, if you've got to do a development, you've got to look at the acquisition outlay. Um, you've got to find out, okay, firstly, you've got to find out if I build this, I buy the land, build it, what am I going to sell them for? And work out what the margin is. You don't want to do it just as an exercise. Uh, at the end of the day, you want to make money. So you've got to factor in things as you know, the acquisition costs, the stamp duty costs, the legal costs – Development application, uh, applic putting in a development application, approval, architectural, demolition, um, contrib council contributions, interest, because you're going to be borrowing money, most people, operational costs, project managing, engineering, surveyors, construction costs, selling costs. Have I talked you out of it yet? Done. Sold. That's like a listing. GST. <laughs> your time. No. No, and I told you. This I, goes on. I told but you. If, I you can't can over, if you can overcome that, wow! I think you're a, wow. you're a chance of getting something started. Well, it's a, it's a case of getting the right people around you, correct? Oh, absolutely. You got to get you got to get a team around you, 
And that might mean that if you're going to do it yourself, you might just engage, you know, someone who can help you with the project management side of it. Um, you know, just help with the costing because every um, every delay, you've got to have all your ducks lined up. You might have plumbers coming in and tilers coming in, and and if you don't line all that up properly, well, mm. it's going to. And if you don't time manage that property for every day, it's costing you an interest, which will chip into your profit. Thank you. Very insightful. Right now, uncertain times, people are struggling, companies are struggling, and some businesses haven't been able to open the doors. How are landlords and tenants dealing with this situation? You're seeing this every day. In some situations, nothing's changed for a lot of businesses. Some businesses have been able to operate uh, efficiently. Nothing's changed for a lot. So they, they aren't struggling. They can pay their rent. Other businesses can't even open the door. Yeah. So they're going, well, we can't open the door. It's not because we don't want to, it's because we're not allowed to. So landlords are then go, then they're going to the landlords and asking for some sort of uh, rent relief or deferral or waiver of rent and then they've got the tricky stuff of the landlord. They've got bank commitments to pay their loans. So it's an ongoing um, – for some, it's, it, it is a struggle and – um, I feel for for tenants who can't operate, yeah. and I feel for for landlords who have got commitments to banks and um, and they need that income coming in to service the loan. So yeah. um, it will be tricky times. Catch twenty two. Yeah, it is twenty two. And it, it's going to be look the blue skies ahead. Hopefully, we're going to come out of it. People are going to be able to open up and trade. Uh, but yes. at the moment. Um, you know, some of these people are down in the in the trenches trying to navigate through this. It's tricky. It's hard for a lot. Um, hopefully, um, we can get out of this sooner rather than later. Gibbo, you touched last month that residential property markets are travelling well right throughout Australia, and that we've been in the the deep end of this COVID period. Has anything changed? Believe it or not, you would think like. Last year, when you looked at the property clock, everything was in a declining, you know, like all all these regional hubs and capital cities, and um, they were flickering round from a declining market, a bottom of market, to maybe start of a, a recovery. But now we're sort of finding that most of these areas are all on the left-hand side of the ledger, which is of the property clock, which is more or less in a start of recovery, a rising market and approaching the peak of the market to the summer in peak of market. Really, the only standout of all of all the areas is Canberra and it more relates to units. So if any advice, I'd probably... And this is what I'm looking at, the Heron Todd White National Property Clock. They do their research... Um, I like their reports. It's good information. Um, they're saying that um, the the Canberra unit market is is, is showing uh, is in decline, and I, I think that's probably on the back of a lot of properties being built and settled at the same time. Um, there's probably a flood of units on the market, it's oversupplied, and the demand is probably diminished quite a bit. Gibbo, on the other side of this break, a chat with a dear friend of your family's. Absolutely. And one of the great Australians on the other side of this. LocateNegotiate.com.au LocateNegotiate.com.au Proudly present John Gibson talking real estate. Simply go to LocateNegotiate.com.au 
Born 1947, Manila, New South Wales, just north of Tamworth. 51 games with the Chooks, 57 with Parramatta. Played for City, played for New South Wales on two occasions. Represented Australia on three occasions, but more so, and very respectfully. One of the greatest administrators in the history of Australian sport. A mantle not given but earned across many years fronting the biggest organisations and operations in the country. The former New South Wales Rugby League and ARL boss turned venues New South Wales Deputy Chair, well, he's seen it all. He navigated Rugby League through some of the code's most challenging years and then presided over the best ever Olympics when Sydney hosted the Games in 2000. And with that, welcome to Locate and <coughs> Negotiate, Mr John Quayle. Uh, thanks for joining us, John. Well, lovely to talk and uh, look forward to our chat. Well, John, just can we kick it off and just talk about the early days growing up in Manila? Well, I was very fortunate, like all of us of that generation, to grow up in country areas where everything was free. And, you know, I was uh, uh, in those days, school was school, sport was sport, sport was everything. We were able to then always play during the winter, play rugby and, and league in our towns. And then during the summer time, it was always cricket. And those of us were fortunate enough to water ski and and swim in the river. Uh, those sort of things are wonderful. So I was very fortunate to have a, a wonderful growing up uh, in the country and my schools in, in Urala and in Manila and then getting that opportunity to um, come to Sydney as a, to trial in those days. Most country guys always got an opportunity to trial, um, and you know that's that was back then, and I think still is today. Even though so many of them don't trial, they signed to contracts. But to us back then, it was a it was uh, that first step in, I guess, deciding whether you wanted to come to Sydney and you wanted to have a career in sport and I was very fortunate that my grounding uh, in the country I think um, still today where I'm back living uh, gave me that wonderful first start in that opportunity. Yeah John I was just I'm, I'm always fascinated where how people end up where they um, where they grew up how, how, how did your family end up in Manila I mean is it like for the viewers out there Manila would be about 40 K as the crow flies, I think, northwest of Tamworth. So how did your family end up there in the beginning? Well, I, I was the son of a, an Anglican minister, Canon Quayle, who um, was in those days classed as the Diocese of Armidale, and that's why my first uh, – I was born in a, in northwest of uh, – uh, in Walgett, and then he was always transferred around, and we ended up in a little place called Urala, and then – he was asked to go to Manila, and and that's what what we did. And uh, so areas in the country in those days was for the son of a minister was pretty special in a way. Even though, you know, um, I think the challenges that that he had back that when you were young, you didn't know about them. We know about all those challenges today. But living living in a vicarage, which was the the refuge. For so many people that were struggling in areas of the country, um, was it was something that I remember so much that it was there was always somebody at the front door. There was always somebody sleeping in the lounge room. 
there was always a return serviceman. If my father, who was a return serviceman, knew that knew of them or where they came from, if they were special, that they always got on a cold winter's night in Urala or Manila to be inside in the lounge room. If not, they slept on on the verandas, and uh, but they always got fed. Um, and I remember that so much, and I think that was again a very spe- special part of growing up in a in a vicarage. I did I did read that the uh, the great Daly Messenger and his wife took over the Royal Hotel um, back in two thousand. Uh, I think about um, two thousand nineteen. Sorry, nineteen seventeen. They did, and yeah. it's 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 That's wonderful that the men of league and and Manila. It, it is, and it's none of us knew that. I, I always knew in the history that Daly was, you know, died in in Gunada, but I didn't know that until the Manila branch of football and the Men League, and led by Trevor Hatch, had decided that that the grave of Mrs. Messenger was at the cemetery there, and the, the Men of League restored it. Uh, there was a plaque put at the Royal Hotel, and. The Messenger family and myself were invited back to celebrate that weekend. And, you know, it was another unrecognised part, John, of the great history of the game. So many people, you know, we remember what Daly did and how important that was in the introduction of League. But there again, you don't understand the the enormity of tragedies that families went through back in that era and, and and he was certainly one of those. When I was just so pleased that uh, that the, again rugby league, through just country efforts of of volunteers, uh, found that history and restored it. And there is there's a plaque on the Royal Hotel at uh, at Manila uh, to this ta- to this day. So, John, when when did you like take the leap um, playing sport? Obviously, good at rugby league and transition down to Sydney was it did you leave town for work or were you leaving town to get to Sydney to pursue your rugby league career well I was fortunate to become apprenticed in in as a motor mechanic uh in Tam in Manila and Tamworth and during that time yes you started an apprenticeship uh, which was a, a four-year deal in those days which I thought was going to be my career but I also then, as I said, we all played sport and I was playing in the under first off in the under 17s and and you played for your school and things like that that were always – and then in I, I got an opportunity to represent the group in the under 17s and you were even back then noticed and then when you were 17, you still most of the time were on the bench and what we called as a reserve in those days for first grade. And a lot of us were given the opportunity in our country areas. And Manila played uh, Tamworth in a grand final, and which we lost. But in those days, the scouts of Sydney came and always looked at those particular games. And I was given an opportunity to to come to St George, and uh, which, you know, I carried that letter around from Frank, Frank Facer in my pocket forever because it was just the ultimate Thing to get a, a letter from the St George Club signed by Frank Face to say we'd like you to come and trial. And in the meantime, I got a, a again a letter from the, the Roosters, and uh, um, I I was fortunate. Then they said, well, we'd like to fly you down and just talk to you. And this is prior to the season, and 
I'd never been on a plane before, so I got on a plane from Tamworth, arrived and uh, was picked up at, and, and toured the eastern suburbs. And I'll never forget, uh, I was taken to Tamarama Beach and there was a surf carnival on and saw all this new world and said, gee, do I have to worry about football? And uh, <laughs> that night, uh, that night, uh, Jimmy Hunt said to me, uh, they said to me, well, look, we don't need you to trial. We've checked you out and we'd like to uh, give you an opportunity and sign you to a one-year contract. And in those days, you had to get approval from the Country Rugby League because there were transfers between the Country Rugby League and City. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I just signed the document there and then. It went, you know, it was for $500 um, to come to Sydney to play football. And I thought, well, what? What a wonderful opportunity and the people that had guided me, my former coaches in, in juniors and then in Manila had said, you've just got to take that opportunity. And, and I did and uh, arrived um, naturally with, I was so fortunate then to, the first pe- person uh, other than an official I met was the great Jack Gibson, who I'm sure, John, you know very well as your dad. And uh to be given that opportunity in 1968 um, um, started a wonderful relationship. Uh, those of us that were country footballers and, you know, on our own, we were put up in those days, many cases we boarded or put up in a in a, um, a boarding house, which I'd never, ever done in my life. I'd never been on a bus. Yeah, going from the I, land to the I boarding house could, must have been interesting. Oh, it was crazy. It was in Bondi Road. I'll never forget it. It was the oldest place. It was full of, um, I can say the word because we called them that in those days, drunks. And it was run by a, a, a Jewish lady who always said to me, uh, you must be home at six o'clock because we only served dinner between six and seven. And if not, if you're not home by seven, the doors are locked. And, and I just didn't know that world. And I hated every minute I was there for a week. Uh, the old Sydney sports ground was our home for training. Um, and in those early days, the official would p- pick you up and take you to training. But then I so many times had to find out how to get on a bus and get back to Bondi Road. And, and that famous night for me was, you know, I was the last in the dressing room of the sports ground and uh, your dad, Jack, said to me, well, kid, what are you doing here? And I said, well, uh, well, I, I've got to try and get back to Bondi Road. And and uh, he said, well, we're going for dinner, him and Keith Clark, and I'll forget it. And uh, here I was, got in the back of that beautiful white Cadillac, John. You wouldn't know it, but uh, I certainly did to think that here was this convertible Cadillac outside the sports ground, and I'm in the back of it. And he said, well, we're going to have dinner first. It was the first night that I'd been to a restaurant. It was the first night I'd ever tasted spaghetti. And uh, when Jack drops me at the boarding house, he said to Keith Clark, yes, it doesn't look that good, does it? You better get the kids a better competition, a better accommodation. And uh, within a week, I was I was staying with um, Keith Clark's auntie at um, – at Cavelli and she was just a wonderful lady and was like going home again and the meals were there when I got home and it was just a wonderful and that I suppose in that first week I was saying to myself I've got to get back to Manila as quick as I can but I think uh, on that night that 
you know that I was fortunate that you know your dad always went to dinner after training with everyone that was lost and uh, it started of course a wonderful relationship locatenegotiate.com.au property advisors John Gibson's locate negotiate buyer's agent seller's advocacy consultancy and research service tenant and business representation you simply go to locatenegotiate.com.au this is Talking Real Estate with John Gibson. Yeah, so, so John, when you, when you settled into Sydney life and your career started to take off and you from there when you were accommodating with people, did you then go out on your own um, and then, then seek to buy a property once you felt that there was that steady income coming in? Well, it took a while because in those days, you know, I was – that was one that Part one time. year of five hundred dollars was a fortune. Yeah. I was going, I, I was going back home, back to Manila, yeah. and uh, but then again, I I was fortunate to join the Eastern Suburbs Leagues Club under Ron Jones, who said, "Well, you are a motor mechanic," and then they had a job for me to start. He said, mm. "Why don't you come and learn a new career? We're opening a new club uh, in a very short time, and we'll teach you the club industry." And I made that choice, and. Was that during when you, you know, were playing? We, was that when you were playing? You had that work experience with him when you were playing. Oh, all the time, yeah, yeah. straight away because naturally we all we all worked back in those Correct. days. We all had a job, and uh, and anyone that wanted to have an opportunity like that, you could do it. And I certainly grabbed it. And the club um, sent us sent me to East Sydney Tech, where you start, and then you spent time with. At the brewery, is at Penfolds Wines. You you learnt the industry, and but you worked it as well. And we were all taught the bar, we were all taught the cellar, we were all taught that sort of thing, which started my administration career. And it's interesting that even when I, when you say, did we first buy our first property, the club in those days were, would go guarantee to the bank for you. And my first, wow, my first little home in 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 Maroubra was a, a little semi and I had no, we had no money, Diane and I, but the club um, went to the bank and said, all right, well, he's got a contract for the next couple of years, lend him some money. And you, you made that choice, which was, again, one of the great decisions that, that I made because it started in the property world. And I was one of the only footballers, John, that my time at, at the Roosters was wonderful, but – then under coach Don Ferner at the time, I was we we made the grand final. And you, your dad had finished in in uh, in that '68 year, and uh, Don Ferner then took over, and he also became a mentor. But I was offered a a, a three year contract to go to Parramatta, and it mm-hmm. was the time of the league had rules like the 13 import rule, and it was a very easy decision. But I also then was fortunate with the Roosters to the club to be able to stay there. And I I was the only footballer that ever played for another club but still stayed with Parramatta, worked at Eastern Suburbs. And uh, When you were at Parramatta, were you commuting backwards and forwards every day? Were you going from Maroubra to Parramatta? Every day. Yeah, because when Dad was coaching back then – yeah, he he did the same thing in the eighties, you know, with with Ronnie Massey. So um, it was a fair it was a fair oh, drive well, we back did. then. Uh, and then those days, 
it was those days no free freeway yeah, and it's I all back streets, wasn't it? sometimes ah oh, Parramatta Road or Victoria Road I had to leave at about four o'clock oh, every okay. afternoon to try and get there in those days we only trained sort of two or three nights a week and then that sort of thing back then uh, but you know I I loved every minute of it I I was fortunate again to to you know, to be playing with the Roosters, but then joining Parramatta, which again, I love Parramatta. I love the the team, uh, the players, the the club, the whole thing. And again, it's interesting back in those times when you think of it, when Jack came back to the Roosters, even though when I was with Parramatta, I always had the relationship with you as the family. And, you know, Jack always, Jack and Judy always took us to your place at Cronulla when we weekends and, uh, I have fond memories, Mr. Gibson, of you getting belted with a wooden spoon. Am I allowed to tell everyone that? Um, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. That's the important stuff you're, you're, you're telling us now. Mark Warren and we are, this is Locate and Negotiate, talking real estate with John Gibson, with one of the greatest administrators in Australian sport, Mr. John Quayle. And so far, just recapping, because John Gibbo, um, he's collated an enormous list. It's like a Magna Carta of questions. So try to bear with us here. But uh, just a segue so far, what I've picked up on is your father was a reverend uh, in, in, in country New South Wales. I think you said Walgett. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So from that, I garnish a bit in common with your good friend, Bill Morty, because he was going to be a priest. I, uh, I note that you couldn't get out of the city quick enough to get back to the country. And that aligns with Malcolm Johnston because one of our greatest ever jockeys, he hated the city. He hated the city and only a very bad fall. Uh, and he went home and they said, Malcolm, Malcolm, look at what they've done to you. And he had no intention of going back. But as soon as his mum said, look what they've done to you, Malcolm, you're not going back. He said, I love it there, mum. I love it there. And miracles came back and the rest is history. And you talk the eastern suburbs. And recently I was listening to a podcast where the body... Bob McCarthy was interviewed and they said he was crazy for buying a house or a block of land in Coogee for $10,000. My goodness, he's a genius. He's a genius, the body. Well, that's right. And isn't it wonderful? You, you, you mentioned great characters. Of it. You, you talk Bill Morty. Can you imagine him being a priest? He became the priest of gambling. <laughs> he was, you know, he would have been, he would he, he would have been wonderful. I reckon he would have bet on everyone who was going to church on a Sunday just to make sure that he would have got us all to turn up so he could win a bet. <laughs> Imagine confession. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. A man that boasted walking home uh, from every racetrack. Uh, in Sydney, he probably. Can't. I don't know if he did Gosford to Sydney. That's a provincial. Uh, the great late uh, Bill Morty, uh, who I love so dearly and a fond. Well, they were wonderful, and they were just wonderful. If you think of the era of that particular time, and you think of the gambling and, and the wonderful stories of the journo's in those days, that you know the trots, had, the the dogs would be Thursday night, the trots Friday. Races Saturday and rugby league on a on a Sunday Saturday afternoon and then you know and most of the journalists would hock their watches and anything they had on Monday because they would have lost everything yeah, yeah. and it was people like Johnny Holway and Bill Morty would take all the watches to the hock shop uh, on <laughs> the guarantee that they well. sell 
Uh, don't sell anything till Monday. If we have a good win, we'll get them back. Yeah. Just wonderful well, stuff. Wasn't there a typewriter or two included in that? <laughs> I think, oh, totally, totally, totally. And it was wonderful you talk like that wonderful era because, you know, as as the great Jack Gibson and Massey and that, r- racing was so much a part of everything that we did. And you talk about Malcolm and the jockeys. They all had a wonderful involvement in league. And I can tell you now, you know, I'm not allowed to tell you great stories of those particular times. But when footballers got with jockeys, footballers got with trainers, and <laughs> coaches got with 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 racing, I can tell you there were some big Saturday nights. Yeah, particularly particularly in the Gibson household, collecting. I mean, just counting and so forth. You yes. know, doing doing the budget if well, you like. <laughs> and and in those those days, one of my great again, memories of, of of Mr. Gibson was, you know, when he knew that I was a motor mechanic and I could drive well, he used to say to me, oh, I need someone to drive me around tonight. Mm-hmm. And on a couple of occasions, I drove him everywhere because, you know, <laughs> we were working at the club and had time off. And one particular night, we go to this wonderful little place called the Forbes Club. Yeah. A wonderful illegal gambling place, which was which was um, owned in those days by a great um, Eastern Suburbs supporter and Perse Clear and the Clear family, and and Jack would say, "I won't be long." And then one particular night, he says to me, "Oh, you could come in now. You can come in." I was only feeding him nineteen, and I'd never seen a gambling place, and I thought, "In I come." And here it was, free beer, beautiful young ladies and all this. It was a whole new world. And again, so I got it introduced to all those particular things by Mr. Gibson. Yeah, yeah. And I, look, we will get back to talking real estate. Uh, some of my fondest memories are uh, in pyjamas in the press box at Leichhardt Oval with the midweek competition, sitting there with the journos, uh, and also in the pyjamas at Wentworth Park and Harold Park, and my mum, Monica Warren, talks so fondly. Well, I don't know about fondly because she's strict Catholic too, as you know, John. And she recalls going to the Forbes Club herself uh, with a lot of those dignitaries back in the day. So, yeah, great memories. Uh, I, I think great memories. And everyone knew everything. That's why I think it was, you know, any player that used to try and go to somewhere like that because of the network and all that sort of thing, it didn't take long for the gossip to get out, especially the you know, IKH Jack at the time or anyone. Oh, uh, guess who was seen down there that night? There was no social media or cameras, so it was pretty good. And uh, I, I remember when I became uh, head of the league, I was very fortunate that my early part of contacts with the gambling and racing industry allowed me to get some good information on footballers that might have done the wrong thing at that particular time. Can can you? I, I'm sorry to be indul- self indulgent, but it's very much about Jack and John. You told a lovely story, but if I if I if I mention or paraphrase one of the sentences, who won the fight? You told that story. I think you'll find at Jack's funeral, just about what you're talking about then in regards to 
him knowing what had happened before the players told him. Do you recall that story of a couple of players out one evening? Oh, look, well, you know, in those days, again, you always went to the pub after training. In the early days of the Roosters, you went up to the Dunbar and then you went to the Phoenix. And yes, Jack was very rarely seen at the pubs, but always knew. He used to say to the publican, don't ever let them stay too long. And the publicans were naturally always frightened of Jack and would not make sure that that was the case. And one night a fight broke out between two forwards. Uh, and the publican said, well, gee, we better stop this and we better tell everyone to get going. And uh, Johnny Peard... Uh, Johnny Mays lived at Cronulla and uh, Johnny Peard, it's a way he tells us is much better than the way I do, but uh, he had a little Morris Minor ute and he's flying along the freeway near the airport and got pulled over. And uh, uh, the policeman looked at him and and said, well, I know who you are. Uh, And John naturally said, yes, sir, and yes, I we all used to drop Jack's name at the time. Yes, yes, and I, I've just been with Mr Gibson. I've just been training Jack Gibson and dropped his name and all. And anyhow, someone went fast past the policeman. He said, well, you get yourself home, son, and he took off. And when uh, when John gets home, he thought, well, I better ring Jack. In those days, no mobile phones, but he rang on the house phone to say, Jack, I just want to let you know. Uh, there might be some trouble because Monkey and I, Johnny Mays and I, got pulled up. And uh, I don't think we're going to be in trouble, but we might be because I was breathalyzed and all that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, okay. And uh, Johnny sort of said to Jack and apologised for everything like that, and that was it. And then uh, on the final part of the conversation, Jack's famous words were, and tell me who won the fight. <laughs> And that was within a very short time. That was within a, an hour or half an hour of the fight being on. So that network back then, but as I can say to you quite clearly, the publicans were terrified of Jack. And if Jack ever said anything t- to them and told them that they made sure of that or there'd be not. I remember another you know, great story where with the club, um, you know, you'd be interested in this because it's, it, I don't know whether it happens today, but because I was in charge of staff at the Roosters and playing with Parramatta and Arthur and Bunny Riley, in many cases, you know, golf and cards was the big thing. But, but he'd ring me up on occasions and say, what are you doing? I need you. I need you and Bunny to come with me for an hour. And we'd think, oh, dear, where are we going today? Anyhow, Jack would pull up at the club and we'd hop in the car and away we where we going, Jack, it doesn't matter. You just watch. And away we'd go and we'd get to the front gate of Long Bay and we think, what are we doing here? And it was like a welcoming party, Mr Gibson, drive through here. We'd go there and Jack was such a hero to so many of former Former jockeys, former racing identities, former rugby league players were all seen to be residents there. And it was <laughs> so good that Jack would bring a couple of footballers to say hello, have a chat. And we did that so many times. No one ever knew about it, but I've got to say again, it was uh, it made so many of those guys feel pretty good. 
seeing Mr. Beetson or Mr. Bunny Riley or or uh, Arthur Beetson walking into the parade ground at, at certain institutions. Yeah, and let's talk real estate and get back on track here with John Gibson talking real estate. I'm Mark Warren, your co-host. We're talking to Mr. John Quayle and reminiscing about hey, yeah. former residences and property. Long Bay Jail, I think he may have met a man right. by the name of Lionel Potter. The, I trialled for South many years ago, and I hope Lionel's doing really well. John, back with you. John, in in 83, you were appointed the GM in New South Wales Rugby, for the New South Wales Rugby League. Um, the game was in a complete mess. Can you talk us through about the challenging time um, you faced back then when you took on that job? Well, it, it, it was, John. It was, you know, a massive change in the game's history. We'd gone through a Royal Commission um, because of a number of things. The club was on it. The, the clubs, we had six of the clubs were insolvent. Um, the league had made a, a decision at that time that they were going to take certain clubs out of the competition. And it was solely predominantly a New South Wales competition. And, but again, after the Royal Commission, the league, um, made a decision to restructure itself. Um, they agreed to that. Uh, Kevin Humphreys was the predecessor, and Kevin, I must say, was, was, you know, had gone through his own personal problems at that time, but was also great to me and was ahead of his time in that time. But the game was just on its knees. And um, under the, the new structure, I was, I was, uh, asked to apply for the position as the new general manager of the league because they were going to become incorporated. And it's incredible that, again, two of my referees at the time and references was Jack Gibson and, and Kerry Packer, who, I, you know, were all good friends. And I remember Jack saying to me, you're kidding, aren't you? They all hate me down there. If I, you put your name, put my name on your, on your application, you got no chance. And... Yes, I, I was fortunate to become the chief executive or the general manager at that time in the New South Wales League. And, and it was a time of great change. We had to, the game was run by a general committee of 42 members and then an executive committee of 16. And we were unincorporated, so you didn't have to account for anything. And it was big change. And uh, as I said, the league had taken out the first big step that they'd taken out uh, Newtown had gone down and taken out Cronulla and Western Suburbs out of the competition. People don't realise that then, you know, Cronulla came back in through a motion and a lot of that had to do with your dad and and Ron Massey's involvement and all of that. And then the league, Western Suburbs took the league to court and won. And that was one of my first jobs is going to court and that taught me the the great loyalty, the great passion that people had for the sport, and it really gave me a great history lesson in the in why you should never eliminate a club that was certainly part of the foundations and the growing of the game. So I was fortunate to make that change, and then um, you know it was a whole new board of the game. We we went from a sixteen man general committee of executive committee to a board of nine with two outside representatives and it made great change in the game and um i was very fortunate to be part of that and you and, and when you took over how's the balance sheet looking well we were broke um we had on we owed six thousand 
dollars I remember to this day and and there was we had to buy go to the Commonwealth Bank and borrow to pay the clubs uh, an amount of money which they were all members of the, of the game and uh, you know the it was just a very difficult time and but the, to the credit of the game this is why it's seen we've seen the credible resilience of it. The clubs were supportive of change. A lot of them weren't. Certainly a lot of them fought against change. But with a new board, we were able to get our credibility back to start to and to get television more prominent, to start to get corporates more involved. And we set a number of incredible rules against that and that we knew then that we, we had to prop up a lot of those clubs early on to keep them in the competition because you needed a strong competition with television back then. And and I think those changes that we made, the good thing about it, I was fortunate to have two great chairmen, first in Tom Bellew, who was given the role to take over at that difficult time, and then Ken Arthurson, who um, we had a great combination. And Ken, as a former club executive saw that we needed change and allowed us to make the decisions. And there were a lot of those decisions that people fought against. Uh, but I've got to say in the end that they proved that it, it allowed the game to totally change, allowed the game to regenerate with a different fan base to bring women into the sport, uh, to get our credibility back. And then uh, it grew from there and to the stage that expansion was on our agenda when the game was wanting to take clubs out we decided that we wanted to expand the game and at least that was none to me one of the great new steps in the history of the game we are talking real estate and rugby league and administration and we're going to talk a lot of property we're going to take our time with the great john quayle under your reign you're too humble to say so but running the game with ken arthurson who you mentioned the game grew with record crowds, television ratings, sponsorships, expansions, participation levels, all up and build up reserves and funds as John continues the story. Gibbo, did you tell me that John once fined Jack? Did you tell me that? Well, John could probably tell the story better than I can, but I think that uh, there was a couple of rules brought in with coaches making certain comments and I think Dad was supporting it. Um you tell a story, John, about that one where you had to find Dad. And- well, I, I certainly, as I said, I, I was fortunate to have that great relationship with the Gibson family. And, and all the way through, even though, you know, on so many occasions, we you talk about real estate and your dad was so supportive of all of us trying to get real estate and get our houses. And you talk about the elite of South Sydney, the Ron Coots and the Bob McCarthy's. They were all paying a fortune. So they were able to buy all those wonderful properties in Coogee. All our other, you know, people like us that were just battlers, we had to live around, you know, around Bondi and Maroubra, but we didn't mind. And it started us all off. But then, you know, you talk about Jack in those days, and yes, Jack rings me up one day because the headlines on all the papers in those days was referees. The whole game, referees. Coaches would whinge every time they lost. And Jack rings me up one day and says, you better do something about that. You should fine us. And I went to the league and the board and I said, I want to introduce a rule that any coach that comments 
after a game in relation to a referee and criticisers, it will be fine. And the league were very reluctant to do it because they all knew their coaches would be getting fined. But anyhow, um, they allowed me to introduce a rule. And in those days, the first fine was $1,000. And so guess who the first person I had to fine was? Was He was the big article on Channel 9, big article in the paper and on Channel 9 of Jack criticising the referee. I ring him up and I said, I've got to fine you. He said, I didn't say anything critical of the game or the referees. I said, yes, you did. Anyhow, I fined him $1,000. He disputed it. I had to have an appeals committee. He went to the boardroom, and I'll never forget, he looked across at me and he said, tell me who put you up to this. <laughs> and I said, I had to stick solid and say, it's my decision, Mr. Gibson, and I was very official. Anyhow, the board stuck with me on it, and guess what? He didn't talk to me for 12 months. Wow. Never spoke a word to me after (laughs) that. Wow. Which was quite shattering. But i got to say, it took the referees off the back page and put the players and coaches back on it. Which was, and, then, and then the next one was Fulton, who said, you know, talk that famous line about the cement truck with Bill Harrigan. So I wanted $10,000 fine, and anyhow, I ended up fining Bozo $6,000, and that was a hell of a lot of money in those days. Yeah. And uh, But I've got to say, it did change again, putting the referees on the back burner rather than on the back page. Talking Real Estate with John Gibson and proudly brought to you by locatenegotiate.com.au. Buyer's agent, seller's advocacy, consult and research service, commercial tenancy representation, locatenegotiate.com.au. Or give the team a call. It's 1300 008 006. That number again, 1300 008 006 locatenegotiate.com.au Gibbo, let's talk legacies. Simply the best. Gibbo? Well, John, that was probably one of your biggest, um, you know, well, it's a very renowned achievement is the introduction of the Tina Turner promotion. Can you just give us a bit of an insight of uh, where that thought bubble came from and how it developed? Well, it was it, yes, it, it, look, people have, people remember it all so well and people say to me, well, that's the greatest achievement. Well, to me it wasn't because it was getting the game of credibility and then to me the, the, the greatest achievement was expanse, expansion. But our marketing department and our, ad, our advertising agency, Ernst Walpole, had said, well, look, and we all knew that our statistics were showing we were solely a male-dominated sport uh, played by men, watched by men, and the theme was to change it. And Hertz Walpole came up with a wonderful theme of what you see is what you get. Uh, and it was it was a, a great tune by Tina Turner. Well, Tina and Ike Turner used to come to Sydney and they were very popular. And, and again, we were able to – Tina was managed by – uh, Roger Davies, who was a, an Australian from from Melbourne, and, and Roger agreed to us using the music. But 
no one could sing that music like Tina Turner. And so we decided to try to get Tina Turner. And Roger said, well, you've got one day if you want to do this in London uh, to film, if you want to do that. Jim Walpole and I got on a plane to London. Uh, We filmed that first commercial, uh, which was outstanding, won all awards for sport. And then, uh, you know, I always thought that that would be the one and only because it got a lot of flack about why we were using a black American grandmother to promote the game of sport. But it's the greatest came out. It uh, yes, it did. And but it's you know within that six month period because it was also good for Tina. uh, Roger had rung us and said, "Look, we've got another uh, uh, recording that's going to be a Tina Turner new." song on a new album and I think it's going to be, I think it's written for sport. You better get over to America and have a look at it. And so again, the board allowed myself and Jim Walpole to go to America where uh, we heard this wonderful track called Simply the Best. And it wasn't even recorded at that time, but we were able to buy it for the Southern Hemisphere and have Tina do it. And it naturally became and still is an anthem that uh, is acknowledged with rugby league. It should be. It's the greatest advertising campaign, humbly, as a as a little media buyer and ad agency, and it should still be the anthem for rugby league. In no matter, you know, they they can remix it, they can do whatever they like, but uh, it's inclusive. It's an anthem. It'll stand for all time. And for mine, Gibbo, it probably should still be the rugby league anthem all time. Just an unbel ahead of its time. Absolute cracker. Um, and Mark had achieved all the the goals of, of, of bringing women and girls yes. back in. Women started. They didn't know anything about the game of league, yeah. but they loved the commercial so much, and it went around the nation, and it was well, good it, stuff. And so, it was, it was very but catchy. you talk about really. I know this is a r- real estate show, and that's why I'm, you know it's like the Warren family. You know, oh. you've got property all over Australia. You've done <laughs> so well, your father and you. And, the, you know, it's all wonderful real estate that you've all invested so well. And I, like me, I, having the advice of Jack Gibson, I was very fortunate that real estate was a very important part of my development and that, that I have now. But I used to, as everyone says that's a retired farmer or a farmer of property. Well, you've always got money to you go and buy a rural property, and that's what I believe happened to me. But anyhow, I'm very fortunate to be living. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Hold, hold, hold. We're taking our time with you, uh, and the only real estate no. my father's got is a, I think he's still got a mortgage. It's Castle Hill, and the only other property is a fairly heavy and substantial investment in Tabcorp. But that's a different story for another time. In 1995, well, right. the... remind him, remind him when you <laughs> oh, talk. we do remind him. Yes, he we was a mate of, he was a mate of Bill Morty's, so that was the problem. <laughs> I think, I'm pretty sure Bill gave him some Christmas cards over the years. Oh, dear, oh dear. Um, in 1995, the Super League war broke out and split the game. And there's a word here that John Gibson wrote for our notes that says friendships were broken. A lot of time has passed. Do you feel like all those friendships have mended over time? You fought in the trenches with this Super League war. Did it take a personal toll on you, John? Oh, totally. It, you know, it ended my association with the game during that time. I, You know, it was out of our control. It was not about the sport in any way. It was about the introduction of pay television across Australia, and it was and it was a legal fight for three years, and it just destroyed 
the original fabrics and loyalty that the game had all, and that I grew up with and that we knew about the game and you, you can't ever blame a player or anything like that but it was it was just a very sad time and yes the the whole uh, environment of the game had changed we were split we had two uh, two sides to everything of course it was a television war by by very wealthy people in those days the packer and the murdoch families that were were you know Kerry had had optus as far as the, their family and the murdochs had the the uh, the cable television in Fox, and that was what it was all about. So it was a very difficult thing for all of us and the game, but I think, again, it played a role in its history and has proved, again, how resilient the game is, game is of course, the way it's come back. So, John, after that, um, you know, after you resigned um, from the Rugby League, you took up a role as events manager for the 2000 Olympics, um, that must have been a breath of fresh air for you. Um, was I knew that you know even though Ken and I, Ken Arthurson and I, you know I'd, I'd made it quite clear to Ken and the game it was I couldn't stay any longer. Um, you know if we were going to get the game back together we were too split. I was uh, I didn't want to work with the people that that you know I'd bought into the game that you know didn't stick with that side of it and I understand all that so it was I'd been able to walk away and and have a whole new look at the world of administration and the Olympics was at that time I knew nothing about it other than it being a wonderful sporting event and then taking on the role with the organizing committee that then built and did what was still the model of the world it's still People use Sydney as the model in the design and planning of it. It was just a wonderful experience. And uh, from that time, it's, it, you know, rugby league became a memory to me because I was full on with 28 Olympic sports and uh, building the facilities and then seeing them operate during that wonderful time was, was just something that was very special to me from then to go on and then work overseas after that. Uh, with with four other different countries and advising them on how Sydney did it, learn the lessons of what Sydney did. So it was a wonderful time for me. And and just recently you've been appointed on the SCG tr- as a trustee. That must be a great honour because you've got yeah. so well, many I, memories. I, well, so many, and I, you know, that all started with um, you know the government. Deciding that they, you know, to combine all the stadium, the major stadium across the state, and it started with venues. And the first project that I was involved in was, of course, Bank West, which was the first facility to be built outside the Olympics in that period of time. And we all we all know it's it's been acknowledged as a great stadium. And now the new uh, Allianz Stadium at Moore Park uh, is going to be just a magnificent stadium, and again that the government have um, put us put all the stadium structure together and into in one board, and uh, that's the Olympic stadiums, that's Parramatta, that's Wollongong, Newcastle, and Moore Park, and I'm sure that it's a a new structure that is uh, going to change the way stadiums are run for the next generations. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There must have been so many memories, especially, you know, being involved with the SCG and and 
not only through your connections through rugby league, but all the other uh, sporting codes, the AFLs, you know, the the the, the, the Hafees back then, rugby union. Um, it was a small world back then, and uh, no doubt a ton of memories. And it was, and we all learned from each other's mistakes, and that was the good thing back then, I suppose, that, you know, even though we're all competitors on the field of play and with with talent, but we, you know, I I followed the AFL when we expanded the game because they, they expanded first. They brought the Swans to Sydney. Um, I looked at those models, um, you know, when we introduced things like the salary cap and uh, we lost the draft, but that was all the AFL model. It was important that we expand the way they did because they did it very well. So we, as administrators, we did. We worked together in certain areas because we're all getting challenged legally with so many different issues, with gambling, with drugs and all those sort of things at the time. And so it was, it was important to have that relationship. And, it, and that's what that's what the Olympic movement was, 28 Olympic sports that, you know, that rose to the international status during Sydney 2000. But every sport, as you'd know, Mark, every sport, whether it is all has the same problems, it's just a different name. And uh, whether it's racing, whether it's AFL, football, the football codes, we'll always have, it's just a different name. In many cases, our issues and problems are the same. This is Talking Real Estate with John Gibson. I'm your co-host, Mark Warren. We're with our uh, very, very special guest, Mr. John Quayle. Gibbo, um, there was a significant change in sponsorship standards uh, that you allude to, John. Yeah, John, you're looking back now with the 80s when the major sponsor was the Winfield Cup. And you roll the clock forward to today, and if you told a young person that the cigarette company was sponsoring the game in a big way, um, I guess they would uh, they'd be in disbelief. Um, mm. I guess back then the Wheelfield Cup was like the sporting bets or the Red Bull of today uh, in terms of how they promoted their business and brand. Oh, very much so. And we were very fortunate that I suppose that's with cigarette companies, one of the great successes of, of league, they were able to – that was the big dollars we were able to bring into it because they knew that their governments were going to stop – cigarette advertising, and in those last five years, you know, we could never have done Tina Turner in today's standard back then without the major sponsor uh, because they funded most of the production and the cost of that. And it's no different with cricket who had Benson and Edges um, and the AFL, of course, and those sort of things. And we all knew that. Government gave us plenty of time. They gave us five years to end our relationship. And it's And you've seen now the new money that's coming into sport, and it's massive money. Um, there's no doubt that probably the next challenge for sport will be alcohol uh, in ways like that. But again, because sport plays such a major role in the lives of so many people, um, I think there'll always be great companies that'll want to be part of it. And whatever they keep their images uh, to the highest standard, I don't think it'll ever be a problem. I'll stand corrected, but I'm pretty sure that Formula One and many other sports overseas continued with cigarette sponsorship after we walked away. I remember answering the phones in the early 90s. I think it was David Hill that made uh, came out and said that cigarette advertising was no longer in rugby league. And 
Wow. It, it, it really shook the building that morning. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. Let's move to today's game, John. How do you rate the game today? Uh, look, it's, well, it's a change game. And it's, you know, I was, I been able to walk away from it as I did for a long period of time. I worked overseas, so I didn't follow it that closely. But then the league did ask me to help with Newcastle after the Tinkler era, and the league took back the licence, and we were able to get the West Group at Newcastle to uh, take on the Knights. And so that sort of brought me back to say this is still a, a wonderful game, even though to me it's it's changed incredibly, mm-hmm. I think, uh Sometimes I must say, Mark, it's it's easy to flick it off because I don't understand some of the changes to the game. We all grew up in a defensive area and that sort of thing. But uh, the, again, I go back to that wonderful word resilience, and uh, yeah. when I look at the history of the game and see what it survived over its time, uh, to see now how it's played, to see the television viewer audience to look who supports it it's still a massive a massive part of people's life even though we all have the competition across all codes now everyone's going to have to work very hard about it but it's a much faster it's a much um you know i think the athleticism of some of these guys the way they can score tries uh, is just wonderful so yeah it'll always be part of um, all our lives okay a little hobby horse of mine i was fortunate enough to go over to the Western Reds and play locally and work there in the marketing department. I've got no doubt that you may well have helped in some regard, but with the Western Reds and Perth and expansion, just tied into expansion, they couldn't have come into rugby league at a worse time. And to this day, I still think Western Australia very much a playground for rugby league in 2021 and further down the track. And we were playing at the Wacker, which looked like a table tennis table in the middle of a football field um, with all the expats from both Great Britain, uh, the New Zealand component, uh, South Africa, uh, Western Australia, John, way back in 95, you were confident to go there. How do you see Western Australia today when they talk expansion? Well, you're right, Mark, and it, it it was it was the perfect time for us. We were only going to go eight, 18 teams at that time, but when we looked at, at New Zealand, North Queensland, and, of course, we always wanted another team in Brisbane, Perth was always our option because you've said it exactly right, the expats. There was only one AFL team at the time, and the support over there was incredible, and that's why it was a no-brainer for us. The sad part about it that then when Super League hit, as you know, the cost, Super League's model was more money for less teams. And it was a very easy decision to eliminate it, where ours was expansion, ours was exposure, exposure, new audience, new participants. And whether it's too late to do it again now, I don't know. That'll be a decision for the current administrators but it was the time you knew the support it was getting um, and it was the right time then. Whether it is again, I'll leave that to somebody else. Yeah, well, the infrastructure is there and it's proven now. You can take any game of rugby league to what was the Perth Oval. I, I can't recall exactly what the name of the ground is now. You can take any NRL match there now as they do three times a year pre-COVID and it's a full house. It's a full house. Um, 
yeah, well, it's, it's a sporting sad. state. It's it's you know it's an it's like state of origin going there. It's like the AFL Grand Final next week. It's it's an event. It's people want that event. The, you know that's the great. You know when governments spend money on good facilities and good stadiums, you have to attract the major events to them. And whatever it is a considered event, just not a game, uh, people will want to go to it. And um, I'm sure that I'm, we've always seen that, and that's the great thing about you know doing that across the nation with television these days. You're going to get the 60, 70, 80 thousand people, and plus live television. Um, so it's to me something administrators should always do. Yes, absolutely. Well said, um, John. Back in the early 2000s, you made the move up to the Hunter Valley. So what was the game plan back then? Did you have a have a vision of growing grapes? Well, it's probably not. I know, I know when I was, you know, Super League, it was was part of it, and I thought I'm I'm no, I've got to get out of here. Uh, I know I'm going to be finish finishing within the league. I didn't believe at the time that maybe my career was then internationally and going that way. My dear friend, Mr. Nick Politis, and I. Had, always discuss well we should do something and we love to find wine so let's let's look at a vineyard and that's how it started and then uh, we decided that we would look at a, a country property where we could develop agriculture and grapes was something we decided to do then and we built it into a property that you know produces 500 you know 500 tons of fruit uh, grapes across the, the hunter valley and uh, we're very proud of it and how how challenging challenging is it to grow to grow grapes? Well, it's it's like every agricultural product. It's designed around the weather, and you know it is a challenge. And it's we've gone through challenges like the industry. We had an oversupply across the nation. We've recently gone through what's called the smoke taint, and um, when the bushfires hit across the nation, um, it, it develops a smoke within the the grapes and you can't sell it. Uh, wow. If you get rained out, disease disease comes. It's like everything. You've got droughts. You've got extreme weather conditions, and and it's it's a lifestyle thing as well as it was for us at that time. And you know, naturally, we commuted to to build it. And it's still where we start our twenty fifth year this year. Um, so it's been a wonderful venture for us, and it's something we uh, we both love. And and Chardonnay is your is an, is what you what you're targeting. Oh, well, I'm pleased that you have mentioned the prominent name of Chardonnay. A lot of you younger homework, generation John. don't drink it because because you want you you drink elite wines like the New Zealand stuff, like Sauvignon <laughs> Blancs and things like that. No, but yes, the done. most prominent wine. The most prominent wine across the nation is still Chardonnay, <laughs> and the best place to grow it across the nation is the Hunter Valley. Yeah. So in future, I'd suggest to the two of you, yeah. when you open that wallet on occasions, Mark doesn't do it very rarely, but instead of going and buying that cheap bottle of wine, you buy a good bottle of Chardonnay. And well, that's there's, what there's you your mate Castle Hill loves a Chardonnay. He'll he'll agree in, entirely with you. In fact, he's probably waiting for his invite because they love a country drive. Just hint, 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 I did, hint. I did read John that in um, you're a you're a finalist in a um, for your Chardonnay back in 2017. Uh, 
Well, you have done some research. Well, we we don't make our own wine. We just grow the fruit grow the for fruit. a lot of the, the prominent grape. companies. Okay. We grow the grapes and then we put that in into the labels of the lower other. And it has done some. Uh, it has had some very good success. And now that I keep reading about Mr. Ray Warren wanting to retire, we know that won't happen. He'll still be calling rugby league when he's a hundred. Uh, but I do hope that one day he does take a drive to the country and I will make sure that he gets fine Chardonnay. Yeah, well, they love it. <laughs> I'm just throwing him under the bus. I, I, as, we go to, as we go to air today, he's not having one today because he's about to do a finals match, but he, he loves a Saturday in the office with a nice Chardonnay and his beautiful wife, sure, she joins him and his mother-in-law, Evelyn, uh, the matriarch, she she loves a Chardonnay as well, and I'm pretty sure that they're coming your way, my friend. Um, so are there any labels in particular does, does it, that does, we should be leaning towards? But, but, but trouble is, Mark, he won't yeah. pay for it. Does does he buy that or does he still get it shipped in yeah. from everywhere? The apple doesn't like fall far from the tree, I tell you. Oh, stop it, Gibbo. Stop it. True story. <laughs> I think he, I think going back Bruce, going back he loved the Richmond Grove that was a muddle idea was it not Oh uh, very much a famous brand and yes it's even though the label is not there the wine we grow as good as grapes that go went used to go into Richmond Grove and back in those days yes Dennis Muddle and his family and his uh, his sister Brett, Linda who's now Linda and Brett keeping run the, the beautiful vineyard of two rivers up here and it's as good a Chardonnay as you can get so tell him to make sure he gets two rivers, reserve Chardonnay, and I'm sure he'll switch forever. Oh, very good. Very good. Uh, it's, excuse the pun here, John. I heard on the grapevine that your neighbour might be selling next door. Is that is that Tullock Wines or is that, is that the, the yeah, two rivers vineyard? Yeah, no, it, there are. There's, yeah, there's a number of prominent vineyards now for sale and uh, – and, you know, that's a, a partnership of the Two Rivers and Tullock brands that will be uh, looking to be uh, sold. Uh, over there. There's been a lot of people that have been certainly looking at that, but there is a new generation of younger people that wanting to come into the industry that have the dream just like us. It is tough, uh, but I'm sure it'll continue to be a wonderful industry. So your, are your vines on your property, did you, did you grow them from seed or did, did you – Excuse me, I'm a complete yeah, novice in this. We start, we, we, no, yeah, we, we did. We started from scratch. We this this Our property was three former dairy farms and uh, never had a, a, a grapevine on them. And everything was started. We had to prepare the soil. We had to prepare the layout of the vineyard. And then, yes, they all came from what's called rootstock. And you plant them. And uh, as again, we're, we're starting what is now our 20 second year of vintage which is um uh, finally the grapes in the vine in the ground are very starting to become very mature well just an amazing journey uh don't know how much real estate we talked uh we discovered plenty though about this man that i idolize who is a family friend and i suppose almost family to you john gibson uh what a magnificent chat and yarn uh to to have the great John Quayle on Locate Negotiate, talking real estate with John Gibson, Locate Negotiate, and, of course, wherever you get your best podcast. Gibbo, that must have been pretty special for you. Oh, absolutely, mate. You know, I certainly um, can't wait to when the shackles are off down here to uh, 
get in the car or get on the motorbike and get up there and taste yeah. a bit of that Chardonnay. I'd love to. Can I come? May I no. jump in the back? No, you're not good after two wines, mate. Okay. Okay, point taken. Mr. Quayle, thank you very, very much for your time today. Well, thank you, guys. I'm sorry that we didn't talk about too much real estate. I could have told you some wonderful stories about all those jockeys and all those gambling people and all those footballers that have made so much money out of uh, property. But it's been wonderful to chat to the both of you. Thanks very much, John. Just incredible. John Quayle. Just incredible. Gibbo, that was that was really special. So the thing with the thing with John is you could talk on a number of subjects for an extended period of time. It's hard to he's yeah. got so so much content and great stories. We only it was only the tip of the iceberg. I mean we could have kept going, but obviously we've got time restraints. We couldn't. Yeah. Um but a great, great person, very dear friend of the family, very loyal friend of the family and um can't wait to get up there, taste that Chardonnay, I tell you what. Yeah, I might go searching, search for a little. Let's do that. Red. That could be our red. That could be your assignment. Well, I don't. I think he's more on the Chardonnays up there. Let's. We'll find one. I think we're correct. Big wooded. I think I can even picture Mister Quayle with a red, actually. And white. And white. (laughs) He doesn't discriminate. No. Can you take me with you? You tell him you're not taking me with you. Mate, I prefer if you know you. You go up on your journey, I'll go up on mine, because I might go on the back of my, my motorbike maybe or uh, – Okay. No, I'll drive up. And, All right. I'll drive up. Okay. I'll take you with I'm me. Going. I'll take you with me. Let's do it. That would be some fun. That would be brilliant. That would be brilliant. Until we do it all again, this is Locate Negotiate. This is Talking Real Estate with John Gibson, brought to you by locatenegotiate.com.au. We'll do it all again next time. Until then, you take care, Gibbo. All the best and bye for now.